to have the hope and the confidence and the joy that you give us. And Lord, we look at this culture around us, we recognize there are so many who need this hope, who need the life that you offer, Lord. I pray that as we open Scripture today, that you will help us to see how you are calling us to live, who we are as Christians, but then how does that make a difference in how we engage with the world around us, Lord? So please give us your wisdom as we open uh, to Scripture today. Uh, May the things we talk about, may the things that we learn and hear, may they not not just go in one ear and out the other, may they not just be stored up as head knowledge, but may they truly be applied to make a true difference in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I was in college, I went on a spring break trip to inner city Chicago. Now, you may be thinking, okay, inner city Chicago is not your typical spring break destination, is it? I mean, you have Panama City Beach, you have Cancun, you have South Padre Island, and inner city Chicago. One of these is not like the others, is it? But I was going there on a missions trip, and I remember as we were driving into the neighborhood where I would be staying, I suddenly had this massive wave of fear and anxiety wash over me. I had this big knot in my throat. My stomach started to kind of uh, churn a little bit. I, I was thinking, how in the world did I get myself into this? Because, you see, I grew up in a small town, about 3,000 people. There were larger towns around me, but the, lar- the nearest large city was St. Louis, which was two hours away from my home. And I really didn't spend that much time in big cities. We'd go to professional sporting events in big cities, but besides that, I didn't spend much time in big cities. Big cities, in many ways, were a foreign entity to me. And inner-city Chicago felt like a completely different planet. It was a scary place as well, at least in my mind there at the beginning. I mean, we're driving through the streets there. There are bars in all the windows. Uh, there are people just kind of standing on the street corner just staring at us as we drive by. So, so my fear um, and anxiety is kind of up there a little bit. When we get to the home where we will be staying with doubles as a daycare, my fears were not calmed at all when I saw a sign on the gate uh, that, that said, No guns, children playing. And the sign was not a joke. This was one of the most violent neighborhoods in Chicago. So, so here I am all kind of concerned about what's going on here, feeling very, very out of place. Uh, there are some other people on the mission trip with me who are looking out the windows of that house that night, watching drug deals go on right out in the sidewalk right in front of the house, and they want to videotape it, and I'm like, no, get out. I, I want to stay safe in here. Um, I mean, get out of the window with the video cameras. Um, so I felt so out of place there. I, it was very obvious that I was an outsider, and it made me very, very uncomfortable. Now, I'd say that if we go around this room this morning, we all can identify times where we felt like an outsider. I mean, sometimes it's something as simple as just going to an unfamiliar city or going to another country where they don't speak our language, where we can't really read the signs very well. We feel like an outsider. It makes us perhaps feel a little bit uncomfortable. But there are other times just more locally, more subtly, where we also can feel like an outsider. I think, for instance, of times where we may be having conversations with other people, maybe in our workplace or at school or uh, at a restaurant. And at some point in the conversation, the, the topics move in a direction that is contrary to what our beliefs or values are. Everyone else is, is lining up on one side of the topic, and we are on the opposite side, And how do you feel in those times? 
and you probably feel very uncomfortable. You, you're kind of like an outsider, even if you've known these people for a long time, because of your divergent opinions on this sensitive topic. And so in those times, as you feel like an outsider and feel uncomfortable, you may get angry or defensive. Or maybe you just want to kind of crawl into a hole, just be very quiet, pretend like you aren't there, don't contribute anything, don't make them mad. Or maybe, on the other hand, you just bend the truth a little bit, lie about your position on the topic, so that then you won't look bad in their eyes. But there are these times in our culture where we feel like outsiders, especially if we want to be a devoted follower of Jesus, there are times we're going to feel like an outsider. Do you know what? That's fine. That's good, actually, because that's the way it's supposed to be when we are Christ followers living in the midst of a broken, sinful world that's in rebellion against God. We are, in essence, outsiders. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in a series right now called Engage. And Engage is all about how do we engage our ever-changing culture with the never-changing gospel. And here in 1 Peter 2, we come to a passage that is a very beautiful passage. To me, it's a very magnificent passage in terms of its content, in terms of how it's presented here. But it's also a passage that contains a couple of key truths that are foundational for how we engage with culture around us. The foundational truths revolve around our sense of identity as Christians. And then based on that identity, how do we relate with the surrounding world? So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this first section of the passage that we're looking at really speaks to our sense of identity and calling as Christians that God has set Christians apart to glorify him. He has set Christians apart to glorify him. Now Peter, as he's talking here, he uses these descriptions for us. He says we are chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. We may be wondering, what in the world does that mean? I mean, holy nation, how are we Christians or the church, how are we a nation? Or what does it mean to be a royal priesthood? I barely even know what a priesthood is. You may be wondering, what's all this about? Well, these are terms that were used in the Old Testament to describe Israel, and now Peter is applying them to the church. Old Testament terms to describe Israel that Peter is using to describe the church. So let me point you to a couple of Old Testament passages that show these terms applied to Israel. One is in the book of Exodus. In, in the book of Exodus, you have God leading uh, Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they come to this mountain called Mount Sinai, and there God creates a covenant with them, a special, a devoted relationship between Israel and God. That's where the Ten Commandments come up. And listen to what happens in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations... You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we have three phrases right there that God was speaking to Israel that also occur in 1 Peter 2. A treasured possession, 
a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now I want to turn your attention over to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 20 and 21. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah again to Israel, this time in slightly more metaphorical terms. But he says to Israel, I, I give you water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to drink, I, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So here are a couple more key phrases. That, that they are a chosen people, that they might declare God's praise. Now we come back here to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me read it again. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we have a question of, okay, what's going on here? We see these terms that had applied to Israel. Now Peter is applying them to the church. Does this mean that, that God is replacing Israel with the church? Like, okay, God's speaking to Israel. Israel, I gave you guys a whole lot of chances. I, I made you really special. I, I, I've set you apart from my purposes but man, you guys have messed up again and again and again and again. I've given you many, many, many chances. I'm tired of giving you second and third and 18th and 25th chances. I'm going to go to plan B now, the church. Is that what God's doing here? No. God is not replacing Israel with the church. He's not nullifying those old promises. He's not abolishing everything that he's said before. Instead, what he's doing is fulfilling the promises to Israel through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Israel. They, they all came to pass, just not in the way that Israel originally thought. Look with me now, back here to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to back up to the, just before our passage for today, verses 4 through 8. And, and we see this uh, picture of how Jesus is the fulfillment. Peter writes, as you come to him, the living stone, this is a metaphorical way of talking about Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so here we have this imagery of temple. Now, now the temple in Jerusalem is obsolete. We've been looking at that the last few weeks through Jesus' teaching in John 4. It's obsolete. Now, now, the true spiritual temple is the people of God, with the Holy Spirit residing in, in the presence of, of the church, of Christians. And then Peter starts quoting some Old Testament scriptures. He says, verse 6, For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So this is, again, metaphorical imagery. Jesus is pictured as a cornerstone here to build this new spiritual building. Now to you who believe, Peter says, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, here are two more Old Testament quotes, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So here Peter is pointing to these Old Testament passages that foretold the fact that when God brought his promised Messiah into the world, Israel was the instrument through which the Messiah came, but when the Messiah came, a lot of Israelites, including a lot of Jewish leaders, would not accept him as Messiah. They stumbled over him. But then, Peter comes to verse 9, but you, meaning those who, to whom Jesus is precious, those who have come to Jesus by faith, 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So God fulfilled his promises to Israel through Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is fulfilling his mission through the church. And the church here is described using these, these, these really neat phrases here. They really point to the fact that, that the church, God's people, are no longer defined by ethnic identities or by geographical boundaries. We're a holy nation, but, but a nation now that is based on allegiance to King Jesus. Remember? John 4, worship him, worship God in spirit and in truth. And we are called to be a kingdom of priests where we are representing him in a holy manner to the world around us. I mean, this is a huge privilege. It's an amazing calling. And a part of this is that we get to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I mean, our primary calling as individual Christians and as a church is to glorify God, to demonstrate to the world around us his excellencies, his praiseworthiness, his greatness. You remember show and tell from when we were kids? Some of you are still in, in age of school where you have show and tell. I mean, show and tell is so cool. I kind of wish we still had show and tell. It'd be fun, wouldn't it? Um, but show and tell, you, you pick out something fun that you're going to take into school, and maybe it's a stuffed animal or another toy, or maybe it's a collection of some sort or a photograph of something that you did that is really meaningful to you. You take it in, you show the class, and you say, hey, here's this thing, and you tell them about what, what's going on with that thing, why it's special to you. You know what? We are God's show and tell project to the world. We are. He is saying, okay, through you, I'm going to show my greatness to the world around you. You are to tell the world of my greatness as you declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, there is one other interesting phrase in here, too, that we're God's special possession. You're God's special possession. Do you know how, how amazing that is? Think for a minute about how items that are in this world— some of them have value just because people will pay a lot of money for them. Like cars, nice cars are worth a lot of money because people will pay for them. But there are other items that in and of themselves don't look like they have that much value. So you have an old dictionary. I mean, really old dictionary. You look at it and be like, why would I really want that? It's outdated, it's old, it's worn. But if you, if you found out, for instance, that that dictionary belonged to Abraham Lincoln, it would take on a whole new meaning, wouldn't it? it would be so much more valuable. Or say you have an old wooden desk. You look at that desk and be like, well, no, I kind of like the new style more. I'll pass on that. It might have some value to people who like antiques. But if you found out, for instance, that this desk had previously belonged to Winston Churchill and that he wrote some of his most famous world-changing speeches at that desk, it would have a whole new value, wouldn't it? Or if you have an old used rack of, uh, tennis racket, and you look at this tennis racket like, why do I really want a, a used tennis racket? But if you found out that tennis racket belonged to Serena Williams when she won a major tournament, it would take on a whole new meaning, a whole new value, wouldn't it? But here we are. It says that we are God's special possession. We are given value. We're given worth because of whose we are. We are gods, and, and I think about how much effort we as humans put into establishing a sense of worth and value in our sight and in the sight of others. So many people struggle with a low sense of self-worth. 
with a low self-esteem, with a low sense of value. And so what we do is we try to, through our accomplishments and our possessions, we try to build that sense of value and worth. But what it ends up being is just that hamster wheel, that treadmill that we're constantly on, that we can never get off, that we have to keep doing more and more and more and accumulating more and more and more because we're never satisfied. We always need more because we have to keep proving our sense of worth and value. But if we come to this place and recognize that we are God's special possession, that, that he has placed value on us, and our value comes from him, not from what we do, that changes the whole ballgame. It frees us up to declare his praises, not worrying about ourselves, not worrying about, am I getting enough praise? Am I getting enough credit? It doesn't matter if we're getting it. Because what we're focused on is giving God the credit and the glory for his greatness. He's showing and telling the world his greatness through us as individuals and as a church. That is our calling as Christians and as the body of Christ. So what should be clear here is we recognize that we are a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, set apart for God, is that we are to be marching to the beat of a different drummer than the rest of the world. I mean, the world uh, today, especially our culture, it values individuality, values, you know what, everyone just be true to yourselves. Do what you want to do. If it feels right, then do it. It's right for you then. That's the culture that we live in. Even though people may be, might be going in a bunch of different directions in terms of their individual preferences and such, still, there are two main paths that people take. Either prioritize yourself in the direction that you want to go, or you march to the beat of the drummer of King Jesus that he is the one who is directing our paths. And so, so we have to recognize that if we are to live out faithfully the calling that God's given us, that we are set apart for a different purpose. And what this means is there are going to be times in our culture that we essentially are outsiders. And Peter recognizes this. He says, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we are described as foreigners and exiles. Now traditionally that phrase has been uh, aliens and strangers. Uh, I kind of like the terms foreigners and exiles a little bit more. I mean, they all mean the same basic thing. But, you know, aliens, as Pastor David already pointed out, now we think of people coming on UFOs. That's kind of strange. What's that all about? Or we think of strangers, like kids are told, hey, don't talk to strangers. Um, I, I like the idea of foreigners and exiles, which taken together, those terms just mean someone who is in a place that is not really the ho their homeland. They're just passing through. They're there temporarily. And that's a picture of who we are as Christians, that we're, we're here temporarily. This earth is not our home. We have a heavenly home. Heaven is our home, and we're here temporarily. Jesus says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We are not submitting to the world's values. Now, if we were to submit to all the world's values and ways, well, then we wouldn't be foreigners and exiles anymore. We would be living in the way that the world does. But there is to be a distinction. That's a big part of what it means to be holy. But we have to recognize that when you are living as a foreigner in an exile in, in your culture, and when you're viewed as an outsider, it can be a very uncomfortable position at times. Back in that culture, the people that Peter is writing to, they are Christians. 
Most of these people would be first-generation Christians, meaning that at some point in their lives, they made a conscious conversion to Christianity. And prior to that conversion, they would have just been a part of the mainstream of their culture. I mean, they would have had the legal protection of their culture. They would have um, had social acceptance in their culture. But then when they become Christians, uh, their status changes. People look at them differently. They may not have as much legal protection now that they've switched religions. They definitely wouldn't have as much social acceptance. And so these people, they're facing persecution. They feel like outsiders. And so Peter is writing to them and saying, you know what? You are outsiders because you are no longer of this world. You're aliens and strangers. You're foreigners and exiles. If you want to read more about this, I'm just going to give you a passage to write down. You can look it up later. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Also, one other passage talking about Abraham being a, a foreigner in an exile in the land. Genesis 23, verse 4. It's this idea of you are in a land temporarily, but you are not of those people, that you live by different standards. And again, that can be very uncomfortable. It can lead to persecution. And we should, in our culture, come to expect this, even. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. That says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I remember back when I was in college, I was leading a Bible study on 2 Timothy, and we really spent a lot of time talking about this one verse, and just talking about how, you know what, here in America, we aren't really experiencing that much persecution. Yeah, maybe a little bit here and there, but not that much, uh, especially compared to other countries. But then I look at the last 15 years since I had that Bible study and how our culture has shifted so significantly, even just in the last 15 years. You know, still, Christianity is um, the majority religion in America. Uh, About 7 out of 10 Americans claim to be Christians. But I would also argue that a much smaller percentage are actually followers of Jesus. And what happens here is that it makes us outsiders when we want to follow Jesus. And and persecution and such should not be a surprise when we begin to experience it. Let me put this in football terms, because I think Wisconsinites speak footballese quite well. Um, So here are some football terms. One of the major goals uh, of a football team on their way to trying to win a Super Bowl in the NFL is home field advantage to the playoffs. Right? If you can get a home field advantage... It's a fairly clear shot to the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, you have to actually play well in those games and win them, but your odds of winning are much higher at home than on the road. Home field advantage is something you fight for. It's something you really want, something that's very valuable. Now, for, for generations here in America, Christians have enjoyed home field advantage, where majority of, of the population here are Christians, or at least they claim to be Christians. The Judeo-Christian worldview is really the, the basis of the morals and the ethics of our society. But over the last 50 years or so, there's been a major shift uh, taking place that's made it very clear that that we no longer have home field advantage as Christians, if we ever had it, but we definitely don't have it now. I think the wake-up call, um, in my mind, was June 26th of this year when the Supreme Court uh, legalized same-sex marriage throughout the nation. 
if, if you've been following culture, you would have seen that change coming. I mean, I think really uh, the, the shift away from Christians having home field advantage, I mean, it's been going on for hundreds of years. Even look at uh, institutions of higher education like Harvard and Yale, how they used to be seminaries to train pastors, and then a couple hundred years ago began to shift away from that basis. So we've been heading in this direction for a long time, but I point to June 26 being that watershed moment, that harsh wake-up call for a lot of Christians who had kind of turned a blind eye to the cultural change around them, and all of a sudden, they're just hit smack upside the head about, um, wow, something has changed here. They suddenly realize we no longer have home field advantage. We feel like outsiders in our own culture. Like I said, it's a shift that's been taking place for a long time, and it shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly how Jesus said the world would be. He said, keep in mind, if the world hates me, they'll hate you too. Paul said, I mean, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter says, you are foreigners and exiles. This world is not your home. You are outsiders. So that shapes the way that we live our lives. It shapes our perspective of the culture around us. Our goal is not to fit in. Our goal is not to be popular. Our goal is to be faithful to the gospel. We're going to be talking in coming weeks about what this looks like uh, to engage with this culture more and more. But we have to understand that we are set apart, that we are called to be unique. We, we want to be relevant to the culture, but not at the expense of watering down the gospel. So we are unique and being set apart for God's purposes to declare his glory. That's our calling here in this world. That's our identity. And then, because of that, we are called, um, a couple things here, we're called to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our soul. That's a part of being holy, set apart for God, of not conforming to the ways of this world, but being transformed. We'll talk more about that next week. But also, Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So he's talking about living good lives. It's that show and tell idea that, that by our lives, by our love, by our integrity, by our honesty, by our, our generosity to others, by our, our others-centeredness, by our love for Jesus, by showing that, that this world is, doesn't have our two ultimate treasures, Jesus is our, is our ultimate treasure, then we're living such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse us of doing wrong, they see our good deeds and glorify God. They, they, their, their appetites are, 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 are awakened. They want to learn more about Jesus. Even if they accuse us of wrongdoing, even if they want to persecute us, they say, you know what? These accusations don't hold any water because these people are living in holiness and integrity. And so we look at our world and recognize, you know what? People are watching us. We are a demonstration of the world of God. And the question is, what do people see when they look at us? Back in the early 1800s, there's a story about Native Americans living in the state of New York there was a meeting uh, between some of the chiefs and the warriors of these Native Americans. It was at a place called Buffalo Creek. And they were meeting uh, with some representatives of the Boston Missionary Society. And there was a man named Mr. Cram. I don't know his first name, but that's his name. Mr. Cram was delivering a message to these Indian chiefs and warriors about the gospel, about the, the Christianity, just trying to get an inroads into the Native American community. Now, after Mr. Cram shared the gospel and told about Christianity, 
Here is what one of the chiefs named Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs, said uh, to these Christian men gathered there. He said, brothers, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. So you catch what they said there? They said, okay, we know that you're preaching the gospel over here to these white people as well. We're going to observe, we're going to see, does the gospel really make an appreciable difference in their lives? Is it beneficial to them? Does it make them better people? If so, then we will consider it. If not, well, why would we need the gospel anyway? It's the idea of essentially show and tell. What are we showing the world? If we are not distinct, if we are not unique in the sense of loving Christ and glorifying him and holding out the gospel, we have lost the calling that God has given us. Because why do we meet as a church? Why do we call ourselves Christians if we are not holding up Jesus Christ and glorifying him and pointing others to him? Because there are plenty of other causes out there that fight for social, socially good causes, social justice, uh, stop sex trafficking, and all kinds of good stuff like that. But what we have that's unique is the gospel. And that will set us apart. That will at times make us foreigners and exiles. People will look down on us. People will get upset at us. That should not surprise us. Because this world is not our home. Now, we are missionaries in our societies we talked about last week. When I went to inner city Chicago, I was going there as a missionary. Now, I went there for that one week, and then I went back uh, a year, about a year and a half later for a full summer. And I learned to be more comfortable there. I mean, I learned my way around. It, it, I still had to be wise in where I was going, but I felt a little bit safer um, going around there. But still, it was pretty obvious I'm there on a mission. I'm there as an outsider. But you know what? You don't have to go on a short-term mission trip to be a foreigner in our exile. You don't have to go on a short-term mission trip to do mission work because we have a mission field all around us every single day. We are all called to be missionaries there. In order to be missionaries there, we have to recognize, you know what? God has given us something to offer that the world needs. We are called to be different, to march to the beat of a different drummer. And when we do that, we are moving down the line of fulfilling that calling. We have to recognize that even as we are foreigners and exiles in this world, that does not mean that we are orphans and wanderers. We have a God who's promised to never leave us and never forsake us. And Jesus, at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when he said, Go, make disciples of all nations, he ended it by saying, And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He is with us if we go out and represent him to this world. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at this calling and it's a, it's a privilege to represent you, but it's also daunting, Lord, because we look at how that means that we will be in the minority. We recognize the majority of the people around us don't really have a great interest in following Jesus, and particularly in submitting their lives wholeheartedly to him. But Lord, I pray that we, as we recognize the true life that Jesus offers, will submit ourselves to you as Lord that we will march to the drumbeat of King Jesus. And that as we do so, that you will work through us to whet other people's appetite, to cause them to
to want to experience the life that Jesus offers as well. May we be faithful to your calling, and may we enjoy and live out the confidence and the joy and the hope that comes through the identity that's ours through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand and turn around once again.